Truth Espresso, episode 34. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here. Before we get into our topic, I just want to let you know about my free ebook, Jesus, God Among Us. It will strengthen your faith by explaining who Jesus is and what he did for you. Get to know him deeper today than you ever imagined. Snag your copy of my free ebook, Jesus, God Among Us, by going to truthhub.org forward slash Jesus. That's truthhub.org slash Jesus. Did the New Testament writers understand passages in the Old Testament not only to prophesy that Jesus would come, but that he would be Yahweh God Almighty? Hi, this is Daniel Minnick, and welcome to Truth Espresso. I hope you are having a blessed morning or afternoon or evening or whenever you're listening to Truth Espresso. This episode actually came about because of a particular Sunday school lesson on Super Bowl Sunday. As I am recording this, this is February 2nd, 2020, Super Bowl Sunday. And as I was going to church in the morning, I usually go there early enough to help set up some things. And as I was coming into the parking lot, the usual Sunday school teacher had uh, some kind of emergency come up, so he called me on my cell phone. He attempted to reach me once, and I didn't answer it, but then about a minute later, I parked, and then I answered my phone and found out that it was my Sunday school teacher, and he asked me if I could take the lesson this morning because... An emergency came up. He could not be there. He could not tell me what it is, but I told him, sure. And so, in the process of setting up, I I had to think in my mind, what could I teach about in the class, especially since I didn't have time to write down some notes. I didn't, wasn't certain if I would be able to make any time. And so setting up chairs, setting up tables for a special event at church. And then eventually as we were done and before our class was going to start, I had about five minutes to put together some notes. And so since I had been talking about Christology, talking about who Jesus Christ is on Truth Espresso. I figured that I would quickly whip up some notes for a lesson talking about how Jesus Christ is God and what are the proofs of that in the Bible. And so this episode actually is from the notes that I wrote for the lesson that I taught this morning in church, which is February 2nd. So, the title of this episode, this lesson, is Four Proofs from Both Testaments, Old and New Testament, that Jesus is God. 
I asked in the class this opening question to ponder. Why is it important to believe that Jesus is God? You know, it's one of those questions that, you know, we take on faith sometimes. It's definitely one of the marquees of the Christian faith. In fact, it's one of those things that define Christianity apart from other religions. How we regard Jesus Christ as unique and how he is the revelation of God himself as a human, as God in the flesh, as God in a full human nature, walking around the earth, teaching lessons, living as a human, living under the law, and actually being crucified, buried, dead, rise again from the grave the third day. As Christians, we confess this about Jesus Christ, but sometimes we don't stop and ponder and think and ask ourselves the question, why is it important? Why is it necessary that we believe that Jesus is God? In what respect does it communicate our faith? So, number one point, actually, that someone in the class raised was that only God can be our Savior. And so, one of the points in the outline actually addresses that. One of the passages addresses that and says specifically that only God can be the Savior. And so, if someone is going to save us, even if that is some human walking around on the earth, and if his death and resurrection is what saves us, then how can he be anyone other than God, since God is the only Savior And point number two, only God can satisfy and endure the justice against his own law. As the psalmist said that the law of the Lord is perfect, complete, converting the soul. And so if you violate a law, a perfect law, against a perfect law, someone else in class pointed this out, that the value of the one who gave the law and the value of the law itself demands a severe punishment, and only one who would actually be God himself can satisfy that and endure the level of punishment that is demanded for violating his law. And then point number three, only God has the value, as I just said, only God can, number two was that only God can satisfy and endure the justice that his law demands, And number three is that only God has the value and the worth to bear the penalty of the sins of many people. So why is that? Just just think with me, as I pointed out in the class, let's say you have a perfect created human being who lives a sinless life and therefore can qualify as the spotless lamb. He's just a creature, but he is a human being who lived under the law and he could be the spotless lamb to be the substitute. So what do you have when you have, say, a serial murder and the penalty of murder is death? So... What about the substitute? Well, if you have a creature, a human being, of course it has to be human, be the substitute, how can he atone for anyone's sins but just the death penalty due for one person? 
So that is what that is what we must think about. He had to be human to pay for the sins of humans because the law was given to humanity. As Galatians 4 verses 4 through 5 says that God sent his own son born of a woman born under the law to redeem them that are under the law. And so if the law was given to humanity and man was created in the image of God, that's why man receives the law of God, then someone must be fully human to be the substitute to pay the penalty due to the sins of humans. And so that is how he could be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. But it's not just enough for him to be human, because if he were human, then how could he bear the sins, the penalty of sins, where the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23? How could he bear the sins, the penalty of the sins due to anyone more than one human being? And that is why Jesus Christ, as the substitute, as the Lamb who slain from the foundation of the earth... He has to be God to have enough value and endurance to satisfy the law of God and to be our Savior as only God can be. So now let's get into the outline. The points of the outline, the title being four proofs from both testaments that Jesus is God. So each of these points will have a passage from the Old Testament and then a quotation or a usage or an allusion of that passage in the New Testament. So the passage in the Old Testament will be a reference to something about Yahweh God, and then the passage in the New Testament will use that passage but apply it to Jesus Christ. So point number one, Jesus is the unchanging, immortal creator. So we go to our Old Testament passage, which is Psalm 102, verses 24 through 27. Psalm 102, verses 24 through 27 reads, quote, and this is the psalmist David speaking to God. He said, quote, I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations of old. Thou hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. So what do we take away from this passage? David is addressing God in relationship to the creation. God is the creator. The creation is the work of his hands. And how is God different from the creation? Well, the creation gets older. The creation ages. The creation deteriorates. We'll think of the second law of thermodynamics. Things break down. And it says that God could wrap them up like a cloth. But God's years never end. And he doesn't change the way creation does. 
So now let's go to our New Testament passage that actually quotes from this Old Testament passage. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. So the writer to the Hebrews says, quote, But unto the Son, he saith, this is referring to the Father, unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. As a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail." And we went over Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 in a few episodes ago, talking about Jesus Christ, how he's better than the angels, but then he also became incarnate as a human being. But notice what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. David wrote the psalm to God Almighty. Remember, he addressed him as God and compared him to the creation. But notice what the writer to the Hebrews does. He says, but unto the Son he saith. Now, this is the Father taking those words that David ascribed to to God and applying them, speaking them to the Son, describing the Son. Now, when those who believe that Jesus is not God basically whine about the fact that you don't see in any of the Gospels anywhere where Jesus says the words, of course, I am God, worship me. You, the challenge is, show me a verse where Jesus ever says, I am God, worship me. Well, why does he have to say those words directly? And isn't it a strong argument to apply the description, the actual attributes and propagate them to demonstrate that Jesus is God. So if you take a description of God himself uniquely as something that describes only God and apply them to the Son, then that means Jesus is God. So point number one was that Jesus is the unchanging, immortal creator, according to Psalm 102, verses 24 through 27, and then quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Now we move on to point number two. Jesus is the God who descended and ascended to lead captivity captive. And so our Old Testament passage is Psalm 68, verses 17 through 19. Psalm 68, verses 17 through 19 says, quote, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God, or Yahweh God, might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Shelah. 
So that was our Old Testament passage for point number two. The psalmist describes God as the one who is ascended on high, leads captivity captive, and gives gifts to men. So how does the Apostle Paul reference this passage? So we look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So just who is the Apostle Paul talking about in these verses? He's just talking about the one who ascended, but he asks a rhetorical question. He's referencing the verse that says that God ascended up and leads captivity captive and gives gifts to men. But he asks this rhetorical question, what does it mean that he ascended if it doesn't also implicitly reference the fact that he must have descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Now, some people might interpret this as talking about Jesus in the grave for three days or somehow Jesus had a ministry of, of, of preaching to the dead souls, the spirits in prison. This could also mean just a reference to the fact that he he humbled himself and was walking on the surface of the earth as a human being. Whatever the case, whatever this means, the point is that Paul is asking the question, how can God ascend up unless he had also descended? How, where can you go up unless you've been down is the point Paul is making. So who is this talking about? If it's the God who descended to the lower parts of the earth is the same one that ascended up above all heavens. Now remember Jesus in the, the ascension into heaven. The, the disciples saw him go up in a cloud into heaven. And then in Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, he mentions that Jesus was made both Lord and Christ and he seated at the right hand of the Father. So it seems pretty clear that the Apostle Paul is referring to Jesus, especially in the context. If you look at verse 7, he says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So if Christ is a gift, then he's the gift of the, of the God who descended and then ascended, so that he can give gifts unto men. And so then I mentioned in the class that how is this fulfilled, leaving, leading captivity captive and giving gifts to men? The Israelites would probably understand that as the fact that God would deliver them from captivity in Babylon and Assyria and so on. And then he's, he generously bestows them with wealth. But it seems that the Apostle Paul understands this, that Jesus leads the cap, us captive out of captivity in bondage to sin and death. And then when he gives gifts unto men, this is when Jesus ascended into heaven and he told his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit. He'd send another comforter, the 
parakletos and the Sp- Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, other passages, that the Holy Spirit is what gives spiritual gifts to his people, the Christians. So that is point number two, that Jesus is the God who descended and ascended to lead captivity captive. And this is proven by Psalm 68 verses 17 through 19 and referenced by Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. And now we move on to point number three. Jesus receives the worship only due to God Almighty. So how do we prove this, that Jesus receives the worship that is only due to God? Well, how does God describe the worship that is only due to him? For that, we go to Isaiah chapter 45 and verses 22 through 23. So Isaiah chapter 45 and verses 22 through 23, Yahweh God says, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. So this passage might sound familiar to you, especially if you've read Philippians chapter 2 recently. But contextually, I also like to point out, and this was someone in in the class mentioned this, that only God can be the Savior. So if we go back up just one verse from this section, Isaiah 45 verse 21, Yahweh God says, Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, or Yahweh? And there is no God else beside me, a just God, and a Savior. There is none beside me. So, he could be just saying that there's no other God beside me, but he seems to be putting God and Savior together, and you could understand this to say that there is no other Savior besides me. Because then, in verse 22, God says, Look unto me, and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. So, only God can save. If you're going to be the Savior... In the grand cosmic sense, you must be the only God. But notice that this passage is in the middle of a bunch of chapters in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 40 through 48 are commonly called the trial of the false gods. God had a vendetta against Israel for worshiping idols that they learned from the Canaanites and eventually what also led them to go into captivity, the northern kingdom into Assyria, the southern kingdom into Babylon. But as God compared himself to the idols, he also describes himself as the only true God. And so if, as the only true God, in verse 23 Yahweh God says that he is sworn by himself, and that shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. He's talking about religious worship. He's talking about the worship only due to a true God, of which there is only one. It is Yahweh against the false gods, the the idols of Israel. 
and to only to the true God do you bow the knee and swear from the tongue as an act of religious worship. And so from there, we go to our New Testament passage, our corresponding passage in the New Testament, and this is from the Apostle Paul in a passage known as the Carmen Christi, the song to Christ as to God. And we actually went through some of these verses, especially verses 3 through 7, in talking about how Jesus is the Son who, while being in the form of God, emptied himself by taking on a human nature so that he's one person, the divine Son of God, with two full natures, divine and human. But as taking on that human nature, he became obedient unto death. And so now we look at his exaltation as a result of his resurrection and being seated at the right hand of the Father. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Does this sound familiar? Remember, in Isaiah, Yahweh God also says, My glory I will not share with another. So how does this work? How is God the Father glorified in that Jesus Christ is called Lord, kurios, which in context here would refer to the fact that this word will be a translation of Yahweh in the Septuagint and in passages quoted from the Old Testament in the New Testament Greek. So Jesus is referred to as Lord, kurios, or translating Yahweh God. And why not? Because we hear the familiar ring that every tongue should confess, every knee should bow to Jesus Christ, and that glorifies God the Father. Yet in Isaiah, when telling people about idolatry, only God should have the knee bow, the tongue swear in any kind of religious act of worship. So you cannot reconcile these two unless you understand that Jesus Christ is indeed God, Yahweh God, with the Father. And so that was point number three from the Old and New Testaments, that Jesus receives the worship that is only due to God Almighty. And now point number four, the final point from the lesson, is that Jesus is the judge of all souls. For our Old Testament passage, we go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. These are the final verses of Solomon's ruminations over his life. This is the conclusion of his observations about the vanities of life on this earth without the eternal purpose. So King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12 and verses 13 through 14, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. 
So we understand that God is the one who judges all the deeds of people. God is the judge of all the earth. Remember, Abraham, in pleading for God's mercy, says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So it was understood, obviously, that Yahweh God is the creator of all things and the creator of all humankind and the one who dispensed his perfect law to humankind would necessarily be the judge of all the earth. So if Yahweh God is the judge of all the earth, what are we to make of our New Testament passage? Let's go to John chapter 5 verses 22 through 23. And coincidentally, this passage is a discourse from Jesus after he had healed someone on the Sabbath, made him able to walk, and then a bunch of Jews were upset because he healed on the Sabbath. But then given what Jesus says, in verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And so then Jesus starts to explain things more. So the context of this passage is the understanding of Jews that Jesus was claiming to be God. So in the things that Jesus was saying, was he denying that? Or was he affirming that? That would make them even more angry. So John chapter 5 verses 22 through 23, Jesus said, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Wait a minute, Jesus is making equality between him and the Father? You can't truly honor the Father unless you honor the Son as the Father? Now that in and of itself is something that proves that Jesus is God. But I want to emphasize the point that he says that the Father judges no one in verse 22, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. So how can Jesus say that? What right does he have to say that? How does he know that the Father judges no one? And how can that be? You mean Jesus is the judge of all the earth? Didn't Abraham refer to God Almighty, Yahweh God, as the judge of all the earth? And didn't King Solomon say in Ecclesiastes at the end of it to say that God will bring every work into judgment? But yet Jesus is going to judge everything? So let's ask the question, what if Jesus were not God? How could he fulfill this task? Think about Moses as the meekest man in all the earth that God entrusted with leading Israel out of Egypt, the Exodus, and how Moses endured all the complaints. But yet Moses had a flaw. Moses did break one of God's commandments, and he struck the rock a second time instead of speaking to the rock as God commanded. Moses was vulnerable to sin himself. Now, imagine Moses being 
and trusted as the judge of everyone. Remember, God gave the law through Moses. So who better than Moses to be the judge, except we understand that Moses is a finite, fallible, sinful human being. Could Moses possibly pass wrong judgment? Could he get angry at someone and give them conceptually a harsher punishment than is really just, if that could even be a thing? Or could Moses let someone off the hook? How could we trust Moses to yield out perfect justice for every sin, every work? According to Ecclesiastes, God will bring every work into judgment. That is a lot of work. That are a lot of deeds. That are a lot of thoughts. And so how can a finite, fallible human being or even an angel, if there are angels that fell, angels that sinned, how can we trust anyone other than Yahweh God, as as was rightly described as the judge of all the earth? How can we trust anyone other than God? How can we trust a creature to dole out perfect justice? And so, a note that I would like to leave, a takeaway for this lesson. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. If justification depended on anyone, finite or fallible and imperfect, in other words, a creature, it would be imperfect and unjust. But thankfully, our Savior is not imperfect. Our Savior Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is the divine Son of God who took on humanity and the incarnation, and He never sinned. And He can never sin, and He is perfect, and He is infallible, and He is eternal. And that since the Father committed all judgment to the Son, we can honor the Son just as we honor the Father. We can have the full confidence that the Son Son will dole out perfect justice. The Son is a perfect Savior. The Son did ascend on high and lead captivity captive and give gifts to men. And that we can, as the Apostle Paul said, bow the knee and confess with the tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and that that glorifies the Father, because Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is Yahweh God with the Father. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, because I hope you enjoyed the lesson that I was able to put on for adult class in the church of which I'm a member and serve. And through the help of God, I was able to put together these passages and these points in about five minutes' time. And everything went well. So thank you, and God bless, and have a wonderful day. Thank you for waking up with Truth Spresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 